You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. How did you spend 4th of July weekend? You know how I spent it? Let me tell you. I'm such a wonderful dad. Let's hear about it. Anyway, so my daughter-in-law, Ashley, left Wednesday driving out to Colorado Springs, taking our two grandchildren to visit my daughter and her husband and their three grandchildren for the cousins to spend time together. And uh, my son couldn't get off work both Thursday and Friday, so he was going to fly out of here Thursday night. He calls me about, I don't know, 7 o'clock. says, Dad, my flight was canceled. And I can't get another flight out of here until Saturday night. They're coming back on Monday. And it was just silent. So what are you going to do? I don't know. Would you like for me to drive you out there? Yeah. (laughs) No, it didn't exactly go that way, but... No, he's not that, uh, my son is a very caring and loving individual. And I said, well, son, he said, no, dad, that's just too much for you. And I said, no, it's not. He said, okay. So Friday morning at 4.30, we headed off for Colorado Springs, 700 miles, got to sleep that night, got up yesterday morning at 6.30, drove 700 miles back by myself, got here last night, and here I am ready to preach God's word this morning. That's right. So all of you online who are like, I didn't come to church this morning because I'm tired. Did all you drive you, to Colorado Springs? All you slackers. Yeah. And it's been two weeks yeah. for me. It's been one week for you. Last week you were out in... Uh, I was with the Mormons. In Mormon country in Utah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And yes. he converted. No, I didn't. That's he fake actually, news. He did buy some brand new fancy Mormon underwear. I did. No, I didn't. Also fake news. You can't get them. I, I looked. They don't sell them. No, they don't the, sell them in the open market. No. No. You've got to be an insider to get those. What's up with this crowd over here? Yeah, it's like a, just a whole, a whole wow. conglomerate. I mean, did you guys use your deodorant this morning? And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's good. good. We're glad that you're here. My side has more than yours, I noticed. That's interesting. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> they really are, aren't they? <laughs> well, you see, see since I, my eye on the left is bad, I don't even have to look at y'all. Oh, man. <laughs> Man. I'll look, I'll look at this bunch that are the very spiritual crowd. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Daniel, all the way in the Old Testament, because we are starting a study this morning that's going to carry us through the summer where we're going to be studying through at least the first six chapters of Daniel. We had talked about doing a verse by verse through the Gospel of John, beginning that. It'd probably take us a year to complete that, so we decided we'd put that off until the fall when we will start verse by verse through the Gospel of John. But through the summer, we're going to move into the book of Daniel. And I'm really excited about this study because Daniel's story is so relevant to where we are today about how to keep your faith, how to stand out, how to stand firm, if you will, in a pagan society, in a culture that is hostile to our faith. And that pretty much is increasingly beginning to be a description of the United States of America. Uh, Increasingly, our culture is somewhat hostile toward the real deal, when it's the real Christian faith that is being 
expressed. And so there's this great correlation between Daniel's experience and time and ours. And we have titled this series of messages this summer, Unshakable, because that's what Daniel shows himself to be. It seems that everywhere that Daniel turns in his circumstances and in his situation, he's facing challenges to his faith. Am I going to stand upon my faith or am I going to betray it? Am I going to stand upon my convictions or am I going to betray them? And every time, in every situation, Daniel gives us an expression and an illustration of one who is unshakable in his convictions. He made his decisions, as we're going to see, his life decisions, based not on what was convenient, not on what was safe, not on what was easy, and probably not on what he, in his humanness, actually even wanted to do in that particular situation. But he always based his decisions upon what was going to honor the Lord his God. And so every one of us, as we study through Daniel this summer, we're going to be challenged at that point in our experience of faith, of our pilgrimage of faith. We're going to be challenged by this man's character. And we're going to face the question... Week in and week out, how unshakable am I? Compared to this example, compared to this illustration of a man who refused to be shaken in his faith, who refused to, to, uh, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to compromise, how unshakable am I? How like Daniel am I? Now before we study, I want to put Daniel into a historical context in the Old Testament timeline, and in the flow of God's redemptive history, where do we find Daniel? Well, Daniel was Jewish. He was a Hebrew. So Daniel was of the tribe, of, was of the descendants of Abraham. Remember, God called Abraham, said, if you'll go to the land, I'll show you, I'll bless you, I'll make you the father of a great nation, and I'll bless your descendants. Well, Daniel was one of those descendants. And so there was Abraham, okay? And eventually, those descendants of Abraham coalesced into 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And you'll remember, they eventually wound up in Egypt, where the tribes of Israel... Hebrew people were for four centuries were enslaved in Egypt. And then through Moses, God delivered them out of Egypt back into that land that God had originally promised to Abraham, their father. And God said, as you dwell in this land, as the land was apportioned, a piece of it to each one of the tribes of Israel, God said, I will be your king. You will not have to have a human king like the nations around you, but I will be your king. Look to me. But over the course of time, as you remember, the Hebrew people began to say, you know what, we want to be like the nations. And that's one of the most ominous statements in the entire Bible. When God's people looked around them and said, you know what, we want to be like the nations. What does that mean? In other words, we want to have a physical king. We want to have a human king that we can see and that we can listen to. And God said, you don't need a human king. I said, I will be your king. And they said, no, we want a human king. So God said, okay, I'll give you what you asked for. And that's, that's one of the great lessons of the Old Testament is be careful what you ask God for because he may just give it to you. And he did. And that first king was Saul. And Saul was a good-looking dude, kind of like me. He was. I mean, they said he was a very, he was a manly kind of man. Um, tall, though. Huh? Tall, though. He, tall? Though, right, yeah. He stood above, a shoulder above oh, that, everybody right. else. Yeah, he was right. a tall dude. He yeah. was athletic. He's he was fair-looking. Fair-looking. Yes. I mean, everything that people have said about me my whole life, right. they said about Saul. 
<laughs> but there was Absolutely. no inner character. He was an empty shell. He was an empty suit, if you will. And it wasn't good for, for Israel, but God gave them what they asked for. And then after him came David. And David was a man after God's own heart. But David made some horrible mistakes. And there were things that happened in David's life. And then after David, then there came King Solomon, the, the wise man. And when Solomon died, which was 931 B.C., so we're talking almost a thousand years before Christ, when King Solomon died, 931 B.C., the 12 tribes split. And they split into two kingdoms. They split into what was called the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, and each one of them had their king. Rehoboam was the king of the Northern, is that right? And Jeroboam, I believe, was the king of the Southern Kingdom. So they've had a church split, as it were, okay? But they were still God's people. And in the northern kingdom, ten tribes gathered in, uh, around uh, that area, that, and that they set up a, a capital called Samaria. And they uh, were called Israel. Now be careful in, in the Old Testament when you hear the word Israel, because sometimes it's referring to that ten northern tribes, the northern kingdom, and sometimes it's referring to all of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament all combined. It's used two different ways. But at this particular time, they took upon themselves the, the name Israel in the northern kingdom with a capital in Samaria. The two southern tribes gathered in Judah, they were called Judah, and their capital was Jerusalem, where Solomon's temple actually was. Now, they were all God's people, even though they'd had this little this fight and had split up. They were still God's people, so God continued to send both kingdoms His prophets. And through the prophets, God was constantly calling His people in both kingdoms, the northern and southern, to be faithful to me, obey me, uh, walk before your God with integrity and, and, and with obedience. And He said to them, both kingdoms, He said, if you obey me, I will bless you. But if you do not, I'm going to bring my discipline down upon you. So from 931 B.C., for about 209 years, Things were rocking along for both of the kingdoms, went back and, the, and, and forth. And typically, if the people of God in that particular kingdom were doing well with the Lord, it's because they had a godly king. So when there was a godly king, as there were some, then the people got out of idolatry and worshipped the Lord God. But when, a, when an evil king, when an ungodly king was on the throne, then he led the people astray into idolatry. And so God continued to send his prophets to his people of both kingdoms and said, look, you got to get out of that stuff because if you don't, I'm going to discipline you. Well, in the north, there was a succession of bad kings that were not after the heart of God. And so they led the people into idolatry and they rejected the prophets and so in 722 B.C., about 209 years after the kingdom split, God allowed the Assyrian army to swoop down from the north and destroyed the northern kingdom, wiped the ten northern tribes out, and carried them back into Assyria and put them into captivity. So now the northern kingdom is gone. It never reappears, as a matter of fact. So the southern kingdom, for about 140 years, continues to rock along. Some good kings leading them to obedience, some bad kings leading them into idolatry. Again, we come to a succession of kings that are not godly kings, and God says, look, if you don't come back to me, I, I'm going I'm to discipline you. And in 587 B.C., about 120, 140 years after the, the northern kingdom was sacked, God allowed the Babylonians, under the leadership of a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, to come into the southern kingdom to literally destroy the city of Jerusalem, level the temple, and carry the people off back to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, in captivity. The actually, the Babylonian captivity 
covered about three phases. And this is important because it puts Daniel into a historical timeline. The first phase of the Babylonian captivity was when Nebuchadnezzar came and took the brightest and the best of the Jews in the southern kingdom and carried them back into Babylon to use them for they were smart, they were talented, all those things. That happened about 605 B.C. That's Daniel's time. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is actually their Babylonian, their Chaldean names, uh, they were, isn't that right? Yes. 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 <laughs> Did I get that? Okay. I have, I have senior moments every now and then. I have to check with my protege here to figure out if I'm doing it right. Uh, they were the best and the brightest, and he wanted them, and so he came in, and he just took the best of, of the people. And then in 600 B.C., about five years later, because Judah was not sending their tribute, not paying their taxes as they were supposed to, he came in. And a second captivity, he carried more of the people off. And then about 13 years later, in 587 B.C., he just got tired of messing with them completely and just said, I'm going to destroy the whole bunch. And he came in and he leveled Jerusalem. He leveled the temple and he carried the rest off into Babylonian captivity. And they were never in the land again, as a whole, on their own, until last century, as a matter of fact. Now, so back up with me for just a moment to the first phase of the Babylonian captivity. That's 600 years before the time of Christ, 605 B.C. And that is what verse 1 of chapter 1 is referring to in the book of Daniel. It says, in the third year... Of the reign of Jehoiakim, who was the king of the southern kingdom, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God had said to his people, I'm going to do it. I'm going to discipline you if you don't come to me. And they didn't, so he used Nebuchadnezzar. Gave him over into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So he took vessels out of the temple in Jerusalem, the holy place of the Jews, and he put them in the temples of his pagan gods. This is an affront to the Lord God. So now Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. They are captives of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. They find themselves in an environment that they don't want to be in. They are captives. They are servants. They are slaves. Let's just call it what it is. They are slaves to the king, of Nebuch king Nebuchadnezzar. And immediately Daniel is faced with choices, decisions. If he's going to stand out in this pagan culture, if he's going to stand true to his faith in the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or if he is going to blend in, is he going to stand out? Or is he going to blend in? Is he going to cave in or is he going to continue in his faithfulness to God? Right off the bat, in chapter 1 that we're looking at this morning, Daniel makes the decision that he is going to stand out for his God. Now we know that because of the decisions that he makes. And the truth of the matter is, folks, if we are going to be different, if we are going to stand out in the midst of a pagan culture, we are going to be called upon to make decisions. What kinds of decisions did Daniel make? What kinds of decisions are we challenged with making in a culture that is hostile to our faith? The first is some hard, hard decisions have to be made. 
In the first phase of the Babylonian captivity, as James said, they sought after only the best and brightest Israelites to bring into uh, Babylonian captivity. Daniel and his three friends were a part of that. Anybody remember their names? James said their Chaldean names. Anyone remember their real names? Uh-huh. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That, that were the Hebrew names. That was the Hebrew names. That's that was what their mom and daddy gave. That was their given name. So all four of them are brought into. You could think of this as like a, a Babylonian program, right? An assimilation program where they are going to be trained for three years on how to become good standing Babylonian citizens. Like any normal assimilation process, there were distinctives to that program that kind of set them apart, made them uh, rise through the ranks. There were three of them here in this one. First of them, or first of all, they received Babylonian names. As he just mentioned, Hananiah becomes Shadrach. Mishael becomes who? Meshach, right? And Azariah Abednego. Now, most people uh, don't realize, but Daniel is actually given a Chaldean name as well, Belteshazzar. Uh, we don't see that name often. It's often just referred to as Daniel, but he does uh, receive a Babylonian name. So they're all renamed. They're all given new names. Number two, they receive Babylonian education. Verse four tells us that they were selected because they were youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. They were the best of the best of the Hebrews. They were the best of the best. And to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So not only did they receive new Babylonian names, but they were going to be re-educated as Babylonians as well. They would know the literature. They would know how to speak the language. They wouldn't just look the part. They would really know the part. Mm -hmm. They would become good standing people within the kingdom. So they received Babylonian names, Babylonian education, and third, they received the king's choice food and drink. I bet the king ate the best of the best. He did, he did. So what would happen, uh, verse 5, it says the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. So they were given a regimented diet that they were to uh, eat on and drink on. What's interesting is that Daniel didn't have a problem with the first two parts of this program. Right, they're literally changing his name. They're essentially stripping him of his personal identity, and yet that didn't seem to bother him that much. He didn't complain about that. You don't see him really complaining about that. The re-education didn't bother him either, right? They're, they're not only stripping him of his personal identity, but his cultural identity. Hebrew was his mother language. It was the language of the people of God. It was the language of the Old Testament. But they wanted him to learn Chaldean, and so that, that didn't seem to bother him. He just no decided being to being bilingual, I guess. Right, exactly. He's not American, that's why. Um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> third one he took issue with was the food. And this is interesting. It seems like the least problematic of all of them, and yet it's the one where he really draws the line in the sand. And there's two reasons why. Number one is that uh, there were Jewish kosher laws in play for Daniel and his friends. The Mosaic law laid out foods, specific foods to avoid. Some were considered unclean, and so Jewish people could not eat them. They weren't ever really given the reason for why they couldn't eat them. It was just in the Scripture. God said it. That was enough. we got to obey God. And these laws, it's important for you to understand this, really set Israel apart from mm-hmm. the rest of the world, from the rest of the nations. All the other nations were eating ham sandwiches <laughs> and having bacon for breakfast and shrimp cocktail. If you were right? Hebrew, no way. No chance. And so that set you apart from all of the other nations surrounding you. So there were Jewish kosher laws in play, but two, the food was associated with idolatry. So, so beyond the law... 
There was idol worship that was going on that included this food. What would happen is the king's people, the king's servants, would go and get the finest cuts of meat for the king. They would go to Central Market, not Walmart. We're talking about the king here, all right? So really hey, choice while food. There, while we're in the territory, how many of you are the upper crust that shop at Whole Foods? Yep. Whole Foods, Central Market. We have pretty much Central Market's a even up. crowd here. Yeah, okay, that's good. That's good. Right, no, I'm hey, you be you. I support your choice. Central Market is where it's at. <laughs> uh, very, very good. Yeah, so what would happen is they would go, they would get the, the choicest cuts of meat, and they would bring them, before they would take them to the king, they would bring them and offer them as sacrifices to idols. Now, strangely, very weird, the idols never seemed to eat that much, right? <laughs> Uh, because always lots of leftovers. Always lots of leftovers. And so they were then given to the king, and they believed that since they had been blessed by the false gods, the king would then be uh, given extra health and strength and wisdom and all of those things. But this is a big sticking point for Daniel. He's like, I'm not eating your weird idolatry food. I'm drawing a line here. Even if it means standing out and facing the consequences, I am saying no. 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 Now, interesting. Now, let me, yeah, let me just talk for a moment about no, this. No, wait a minute. Let me give you credit. Here he goes. I did this in the first service, and I think this really kind of sums it up. Pardon my, I don't know, my little curse word, but this is actually from him, so if you have a problem with it, go after him. You know, we were talking about this this week, and he said, you know what Daniel said is, you can give me a new name, you can teach me your stuff, but I'm not eating your damn food. And that's that pretty that sums well it up. sums it up. That sums it up. You know, I'm, I'm, not I'm just not doing food. it. That's no. a line I'm not going to no, cross. I'm not going to do it. Okay. This is what's interesting to me is let's talk for a minute about this cultural identity issue here because I, this, is, this is fascinating. I, I thought about this a lot this week. There's a lot in our country today regarding a preservation of different cultural identities, right? So when you come to America, there's a growing conviction, a growing movement that says you shouldn't have to learn to speak English. You can participate. You don't even have to participate in American stuff. You bring whatever in and all of that is fine. And that is, I believe, a reaction, response. I don't know that reaction is the right word, a response to much of our country's history with regard to slavery. Uh, When you study slavery in this country, particularly transatlantic slavery, colonial slavery, and even slavery in other parts of the world. I I, I took a uh, history of African diaspora course at UTA when I was working on my undergraduate degree. And uh, what's fascinating is the transatlantic slave trade is often the one that we talk about the most because it's the one that that came here. Far worse than that one, scholars agree, is the trans-Saharan slave trade that took place several hundred years prior to that in the continent of Africa. Within Africa Within itself, Africa yeah. itself. Um, but when you study slavery in other parts of the world and different parts of history, you find virtually all of these practices present in every single one of them. A changing of names, re-education, and learning new languages, and specifically forbidding mother languages. Mm -hmm. This would prevent slaves from being able to communicate with one another without the people who were in charge of them knowing what they were saying. So all of these are present. Why? What that says is that our language, our names, and our cultures are valuable. They matter. And so when you take them from someone, it's harmful. It hurts. It hurts that individual. It's a confusing process. You're taking a person's identity away from them. Our our languages matter. Our names matter. Our cultures matter. So it's fascinating to me when you read Daniel chapter 1 that the, the, the cultural and the personal identity issues here in this Babylonian program don't really seem to be the thing that, that bothers him. 
He doesn't really seem to be all that worried about his personal identity. Want to change my name? Fine. I'll go by Belteshazzar. That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> Want to take away my cultural identity? I don't really care. That's fine. I'll, I'll re-educate. I'll learn your literature. I'll learn your language. In other words, the things that should matter to him, to us, don't. The stuff we're fighting about right. today. And the things that don't seem like that big of a deal today matter a great deal to Daniel. And the question is, why? Why is that? And I will tell you why. It's because for Daniel... His identity is not wrapped up in something, but rather someone, particularly Yahweh and obedience to Him. Now, now to be clear, I, I want to be very clear about this. I am not diminishing these other practices, right? These practices were waged upon people in our country and in other countries. They are evil practices. None of this stuff is good, so I'm not downplaying that right? Taking someone, their name and their culture, and forbidding them to speak their own language is, is a, not an okay thing. It's an evil thing. Now, to be clear, just as a side note, I do think that when you come into a country, you ought to learn the language. I, I studied linguistics uh, in my undergraduate. Uh, I, I studied a, a variety of cultures during that, that, that time. You would be very hard-pressed to find other countries that don't, in some ways, at least passively demand you to learn the language that they speak there. If I move to Spain, I'm learning Spanish. Castilian Spanish, specifically. If I move to Philippines, I'm learning Tagalog. Why wouldn't I? I would want to engage in the culture that I'm in. And and you'll be very hard-pressed to find another country that doesn't demand that. And and some of you may not like that, and and that's okay. Often, this idea of language within America specifically becomes very political. And and it's really unfortunate because it doesn't need to be. It's really more of a, a point of practicality. But let me just say this. There is a difference between asking someone to learn the language and forbidding someone to speak their mother language. And that's precisely what happened in our history, and that's precisely what's happening with Daniel. Not only can you not speak Hebrew, but you are to learn Chaldean. And let me just say that even in this extreme and wrong setting, none of that matters to Daniel. Why? Because his Identity, again, is wrapped up in obedience. You will never find a scripture that says, thou shalt not change your name. You will never find a scripture that says, thou shalt not uh, speak any other languages. Thou shalt not uh, learn foreign literature. You will find scripture in Daniel's time in particular that says, you shall not eat specific foods. That's right. So Daniel's identity is bound in obedience. The things that we want him to fight for culturally He's like, I'm not all that interested. I don't really care about that. The things that are explicit in Scripture, he says, look, I'm going to obey God, even if it means standing out, I'm going to do it. And and if Daniel was American, he would say, I will not learn your language. Right. I'm not doing it. I will not study your history. Right. I won't carry your Persian name or Babylonian. I'll eat some bacon. (laughs) But I'll eat your bacon. (laughs) Let me just say, let me just say, some of you this morning, you're not willing to stand out. And, and you need to examine your heart. You need to figure out why that is. Why am I not willing to make the hard decisions? But some of you are, are willing to stand out, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> You're willing to fight the culture wars. You're all about cultural identity issues, and yet when it comes to biblical conviction, you're vacant. I'll eat your food, yeah. God's not all that interested in your cultural wars. Daniel makes hard decisions, but he makes the correct ones. So there's a principle here. And I want you to get this. There's a difference between making a hard decision for what God wants and a hard decision for what you want. Mm. 
There's a difference there. How do you know the difference? How do you learn the difference? You learn the Word of God. Mm -hmm. You can't live by what you don't learn. See, for, for so many people in the church today, making the hard decisions is not so much a matter of courage as a matter of ignorance. You don't really know what the hard decisions are because you're not in the Word of God enough to know what God desires of you. We have to make hard so we, decisions. So we wind up fighting battles that don't really matter, don't matter in the kingdom of God. Yeah. And the ones that do matter, we just give up. We just give up because we're not even aware that they're real issues. Yeah. So Daniel makes a hard decision. That's the first thing. But secondly, he makes a heart decision. When we come to verse 8, it begins, but Daniel. And I love those kinds of transitional statements in Scripture. Verses 1 through 7, and then all of a sudden we come to verse 8, and it says, but Daniel. And, and what that means is it draws a distinction. When you see the word, therefore, it draws a distinction. When you hear, hear the word, but God, it draws a distinction. And so we come to verse 8 after this, what Derek has been telling us about what the king required and, and all that kind of stuff. And then we come to verse 8, but Daniel, he sets himself apart. In verses 1 through 7, it tells us what Nebuchadnezzar was doing and what he was requiring. But verse 8 tells us what Daniel did. Verses 1 through 7 tell us why Daniel was, had a hard decision to make. Okay, Verse 8 tells us what that decision was. You see, Daniel made a hard decision to reject the king's food. And when he did... He was making a heart decision. It actually revealed the inner character and the heart of this man, Daniel. Now let me mention a couple of things about this hard decision. Because as a believer, we are called upon in a culture that pretty much is hostile to the, the real Christian faith. They're not hostile if you don't really live it out. But if you seek to live it out, our culture is fairly hostile to real Christian living. And so therefore, we are called on in our culture to make some of these hard decisions. And the question is, what are those decisions like? Well, first of all, there are decisions that have to be, as Daniel, the scripture says, he made up his mind. Okay, now there's more to that, and I'll give it to you in a moment. But verse 8 says this, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine. In other words, Daniel saw as a Hebrew, as a follower of the true God, that to take in this food would defile him before God. Taking a Babylonian name wasn't going to defile him. Getting a Babylonian education wasn't going to defile him. Uh, none of those things were a problem. That's why he didn't fight them. But the one thing was taking in Babylonian food would be against obedience to God, and that would defile him. So this is what he did. It says he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. There's that word twice in this verse. This is telling us how Daniel felt about obedience to God in the kosher food laws. To disobey them would be defiling himself. Now notice it says... In the verse that he made up his mind. Literally, in the Hebrew, it literally says Daniel set upon his heart. Now, he made up his mind, yeah, that's it. But, but in, literally, the Hebrew goes deeper than that because it literally means it wasn't just a mind decision. This was a heart decision that Daniel made. He set upon his heart. In other words, the decision not to eat the king's food wasn't a spur of the moment 
kind of thing. It wasn't an on-the-fly kind of decision. This decision came out of the very core of his being. It flowed out of his very character as a follower of the true God from his heart. Now, this decision, I want to submit to you, was a decision that Daniel had been preparing for his entire life. In fact, I submit to you that this decision to not eat these foods was a decision that he had made even before he was put into the situation in Babylon, before he was carried into captivity, before he even knew he ever would be carried into captivity. This decision had already been settled in the heart of Daniel. This had been his commitment of the way that he had lived his life all along as he walked with his God. It had been the normal practice. Now, here's a, here's a, a point of application. The battle of decisions in a hostile culture to our faith do not start in the moment when you have to make the decision. They must start way before that. God-honoring decisions, when they are hard decisions, have to be, first of all, heart decisions. And our heart is prepared over a long period of time for when that crucible comes and we have to actually take the risk of making that decision. Now, let me say this. Decisions you will make next year regarding your faith are already being made right now. You are being prepared right now for the decisions you will make next year to honor God or you are not preparing yourself for those decisions and when you come you will not make the God honoring decision see if you wait until the moment it's not going to happen and I submit to you that this was the practice of Daniel's life this wasn't new for him he didn't just go in there and, and it wasn't a casual thing this was something he had set up on his heart his entire life now I was a youth pastor before I was a pastor pastor Okay, and not, not that youth pastors are not pastors, but... You Before know, I was a real pastor. <laughs> well, you got to understand, Gosh. folks, I wasn't raised in church. I was raised on the streets, okay? Teenager of the 60s, out of the psychedelics, saved right off of the streets, in and out of jail, in and out of drugs, Damascus Road experience. I'm at the age of 18, all of a sudden I know Jesus. Went to college a year and a half later, I was a Baptist youth minister, okay? And so I was a little rough around the edges, you think I'm rough around the edges now? You should have seen me when I was 19 years old. Just a year and a half off the streets. Okay? So, this is how I spoke to my teenagers. Okay? I said to them, let me tell you kids, if you wait till you're in a parked car with your date on a moonlit night with the soft music playing and a wind blowing through the windshield before you decide if you will or you will not, the battle is already lost. When that Luther Vandross song comes on? Man, when Luther Vandross comes on, the clothes come off. That's what I told him. I said, look, you better be preparing yourself for that decision before you're in the crucible or the moment, or you have already lost the battle. Now, parents loved me, okay? Any, you know, they loved me because I could understand. They, the kids couldn't fool me, okay? They said, just keep my kid out of jail and not pregnant, and you are the wonderful youth pastor. When I took kids to camp, I had two goals. I want to bring everybody home alive, and nobody gets pregnant at camp. 
And if those two things happened, then it was a successful youth trip. That's our policy still. No lives <laughs> lost, no lives created. <laughs> no lives lost, none created. <laughs> we want the same number that started in the end. Now, where did we go? Where are we? Are I have we? no idea. Oh, I don't Luther Vandross okay. came on, and I just, you lost me. I, <laughs> Keep your clothes on, buddy. All right. So... This is the reason why we're constantly talking about a consistent walk is vitally important because if you've not been walking consistently, then when you're in the crucible of decision-making, you're not going to have what it takes to make the God-honoring decision, being consistently uh, saturating your mind and your heart with the Word of God, consistently in fellowship with God's people, consistently in relationships of accountability. All of that is preparing you to be able to do what Daniel did when the moment of crisis came, when he didn't even have to think twice about it. He said, I will not eat your food, not because it wouldn't taste good, not because of anything other than the Lord my God has commanded me not to do so. And he made the choice. Now, I love history. There's a piece of history that's interesting that really uh, relates to this. When Cortez landed in Mexico in 1519, history tells us that he had 11 ships with him and between 600 and 700 people that had traveled with him from Spain. History records to us, and this is not myth, it is actually true, that the first thing that Cortez did when those 11 ships hit the shore of Mexico is he burned all 11 ships. In other words, by doing that, he was saying there is no turning back. He took going back out of the equation. And I guarantee you, he had planned that before he ever set sail from the beginning. It was a part of Cortez's plan. Whether it was right, whether it was wrong, it was part of his plan that he was going to burn those ships when they hit the shore. Now, was that a hard decision to make? Well, yeah, but it would have been an impossible decision to make once they had landed on the shores of Mexico if he had not already made that decision before they ever set sail. Imagine if he hadn't made that decision before. It would have been so easy once they'd landed to go, you know what, we don't really need to burn these ships. We might need them. I mean, they may come after us and we may need to run and we may need to get in the ships and we need to sail out of here. He took that out of the equation when he set fire to all 11 ships. There's no turning back. And that's basically what Daniel did when he said, I will not defile my body with food that my God has commanded me not to eat. You see, there are some things that you need to prepare yourself for. And I think, here's a good question. Are there any ships in your life as a Christ follower that you've put a torch to? You've burned. And you said, there's no going back. This is not up for negotiation. This is decided already. Maybe a better way of asking that is, are there any ships in your life that you haven't burned? That's a better way of saying it. Where are you kind of holding out maybe the options? Well, maybe I will and maybe I won't. Are there any non-negotiables in your life? Or is everything fairly negotiable for you as a Christ follower? 
You haven't really put anything to death. You haven't really burned anything. You haven't really blocked your ability to retreat on anything in your life. And so that's why constantly when you're living out here in, in, our, in our culture with a, that's hostile to our faith, you keep making the decisions to not stand out for the right things. You stand out for all the wrong reasons. So this was a heart decision, how he's able to make it. But also it was a decision based upon faith. If y'all will give us an extra five minutes today, we'll get this done. Verses 9 through 13. We don't get to say that to the first service because we got the next group of victims coming in. So we got to let them out. But we don't have to let y'all out. Okay. Stay with us. I think this is going to be worth it. Not only was this a heart decision, it was a decision based upon faith. Verses 9 through 13. It says... Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. In other words, my king has said, I'm supposed to make sure you eat this. I'm afraid, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? In other words, others are going to be eating this food. And if you don't eat this food, you're not going to look as good as them. And the king's going to know you weren't eating the food. And then my head's going to be on the block. He said, then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. In other words, the king would get me. My job is to make sure you eat this food. So Daniel then offers an alternative. He says to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, well, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. In other words, nothing that violates our obedience to our God. Lettuce, tomatoes, you know, that kind of stuff. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And then you deal with your servants according to what you see. So here's the the deal. Here's what he's saying. Eating the king's food for Daniel is a ship that he has burned. He's not going to do it no matter what. No matter what the commander does, no matter what the king does. That is a non-negotiable. That ship has been burned. So he offers an alternative, which is actually a faith alternative. He says, let us eat our own diet that our God has commanded us for 10 days, and then you see how we look, and you measure us up against these others that have been eating the king's food. And so God has already honored Dan's faith because it says he gave him favor in the sight of the commander of the officials. Here's a question for you. Did Daniel know for certain that they were going to pass this test? If they ate only vegetables for 10 days, that they would look just as good or better than those who were eating? Did he know that? He had no idea whether that was going to be the truth or not. He had no idea what God was going to do, if God was going to give them favor in that kind of way. But regardless of what God was going to do, he wasn't going to eat the food. He'd burn the ship. No matter what God sovereignly chose to do, Daniel wasn't going to eat the food. And here's the point, folks. Faith is not negotiating with God. He's not negotiating with God. He's not saying, okay, now, God, you make us look better than them, and we'll eat kosher food. No. He said, we're going to eat kosher food because it is an act of obedience to our God. And whether our God does this or whether he doesn't, we're not going to disobey our God. Are, are you getting this with me here? You see, so often we view faith as if it's some kind of negotiation that we're in with God. Okay, now God, I'll obey you here, but in return, I need you to do this for me. So if I do this, and we call that faith, then you do that. 
And then when, if God doesn't do that, then we get all hacked off at him and say, well, something's wrong there. That's not faith. Faith is what? What is faith? Taking God at his word. Faith is not a negotiation with God. Daniel is not negotiating with God. He's negotiating with the king's commander. And But regardless whether the king's commander allows him to eat his kosher food or not, Daniel has already nailed it down. This is a ship that has been burned. I'm not going to eat the king's food. See, faith, in, in a sense, folks, faith is an act of desperation. Faith is an act of saying, I am going to do what my God has called me to do regardless of what my God does. Because you see, if I've negotiated with God and worked a deal, it's not faith. Faith is when I say, my part is to obey. God's part is the results. And I don't know what God's going to do, but I know what I'm going to do because I've made this decision. So Hebrews eleven six, folks, says it is impossible without faith to please God. It's impossible. He didn't say it's hard. He didn't say it's difficult. It is impossible. If we are not walking in obedience to Him, we cannot please God. Non-negotiables. Burn the ships. Thirdly, it was an honored decision. It was an honored decision. In the end, God honored Daniel. Uh, for one, his, his health increased on this limited diet that Jesus Which Daniel talked about. didn't know would happen. He didn't know that, but God honors him. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. That's a good thing, by the way. By the way. That, that looks, they're healthier than the other people. Now, let me just say as a side note, this is not making the case for vegetarianism. <laughs> All right. If Aren't you glad to hear that, guys? If you're a vegetarian or a vegan, that's fine. Bless you. Genesis 9. I have three servings at every meal. Steak, meat, meat, and meat. Steaks on the menu. But, but seriously, you know, the, the, the dietary issues today are very different than they were at, at this time. Um, there are a lot of health benefits to vegetarian veganism. That's not the point. That's not the point of this passage. The point is that Daniel's diet should not have been good for him. It should not have been good enough. Despite cutting out the meats, Daniel and his friends were actually healthier, and that was not the anticipated response. That, that was not what they thought would happen. In other words, God honored their obedience by somehow supernaturally preserving them. This whole idea of like the Daniel plan diet, and, that's not a good thing. It's, that's not the, that's, you've missed it if that's the case, right? That's not a good thing. Now, beyond that, God gives them wisdom. So he makes them healthier looking, and he gives them wisdom. Verses 19 and 20, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. So not only were they preserved with health, but they were given, they were endowed with this kind of wisdom that was ten times greater than the chief people in the king's court. Now, understand something. We're going to wrap up here. This is chapter one of Daniel. Daniel has not even done anything yet. <laughs> Nothing has even happened yet, okay? He will be called by God eventually to act. We're just establishing the rules. We're setting the, we're setting the <laughs> stage right now. He will eventually be called by God, and he will need wisdom, hear me, 
to, to respond to that calling. And he just got wisdom here. So understand this. Daniel is being equipped for his calling well before it happens through obedience. Amen. And that is so important for you to understand. There's a truth here. God begins preparing you and equipping you before he actually calls you. He begins preparing and equipping before he calls. The reality is, God may be calling you to something huge in your life. He may be calling you to something rather small, but your equipping for that call, whatever size of call it is, comes through simple acts of obedience in the meantime, simple acts of faith, making hard decisions that honor God, not yourself, making hard decisions that began in the heart, a heart, a life of of honoring God through His commandments and being willing, if necessary, to stand out for it. In other words, living out an unshakable faith. Mm -hmm. Some of you, I would hope most of us, want to be used by God. Amen? We want to be used by God. That's, that's, that's the hope. But sometimes you're not willing to stand out when it counts. See, it starts with those small little acts of obedience. It's not going into the lion's den. It's not going into the fiery furnace. That comes way later. It's saying, I'm not going to eat that because God said I shouldn't. It's a simple act of obedience. It, it causes you to stand out, but it's a simple act of obedience that begins to equip you for that eventual call. Because listen, one thing that we're going to learn in this study of Daniel is that if you're not willing to stand out for the little things, you certainly won't be willing to stand out for the big things. That's right. Daniel's going to do some big things, but none of those things happen without the little things that lead up to it. So the question is, for you, what little things have you neglected in your life? What little acts of obedience have you neglected? What ship is still on the shore for you that you haven't burned yet? Just in case you need it. Just in case you need it. What hard decisions do you need to make? That's what I want you to walk away with today thinking about. And then we're going to come back next week, and we're going to continue in this story. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for uh, just the challenging, uh, empowering story of Daniel. Uh, So practical, And yet, uh, it still just profoundly reveals your character, your sovereignty, your power uh, to preserve, to uh, uphold, to uplift, even in the midst of a hostile culture against you, and uh, how practical it is for us today. And and I just pray, God, that that all of us would leave uh, thinking deeply about those things that we have perhaps neglected in our lives to act in faith on the ships that still need burning, to follow that illustration a little further. And I pray, God, that by Your Spirit, You would empower us and embolden us to do just that, to walk in faith, to take You at Your Word. And for those this morning, God, who don't even really know Your Word, I pray that You would empower them to get into a process to begin learning it. We have all the tools available to us. Will we use them? Because we know, God, that if we don't, the chances of being used by You are are growing smaller and smaller. It's hard to live by what we haven't learned. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 2 of Daniel next week. Read ahead. See you then. It'll serve you well. God bless you. Happy Fourth of July. Have a good weekend. What's left of it?